0: PFK in Los Angeles. This is Living in the USA. I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Later in the show, a big defeat for the progressive wing of the Democratic Party. Nina Turner lost her race for the Democratic nomination for the House in Cleveland on Tuesday. The winner, Chantel Brown, was backed by Hillary Clinton and the party establishment. Alan Minsky of Progressive Democrats of America will comment. Also, Joe Biden needs to do a lot more to stop the global spread of the COVID virus and its Delta variant and to prepare the world for the next pandemics. Greg Gonsalves will explain three key actions that are necessary right now. Greg teaches at the Yale School of Public Health. He's a longtime AIDS activist and a MacArthur genius. And our TV critic, Ella Taylor, has the day off today. First up, today's infrastructure report. For that, we go to our man on roads and bridges, Harold Meyerson. Of course, he's editor-at-large of The American Prospect and a contributor to the LA Times op-ed page. We reached him today at home in our nation's capital. Hi, Harold. Hi. I've got my pick and shovel ready, John. (laughs) Okay. So as we speak, it's Wednesday afternoon. The Senate is debating the $1 trillion bipartisan infrastructure bill. Chuck Schumer wants to bring it up for a vote this week. He expects 10 Republicans to vote for it, maybe a few more. That means Joe Biden will have fulfilled his promise of bipartisanship. Republicans and Democrats working together on projects that will help all Americans it's a wonderful thing. Or or maybe not. What do you think? Well, clearly just a bill on infrastructure
1: is way overdue. Uh, uh, Donald Trump tried to get a one through, and uh, given that he actually offered almost no federal funding for it, it never really attracted much Democratic support. And frankly, Republicans were kind of indifferent to passing a bill that didn't really accomplish anything. So Yeah, I mean, bridges and roads need rehab and so do airports and uh, all the traditional uh, infrastructure. The bill addresses inadequately the infrastructure needs of the 21st century, which is to say green infrastructure uh, at a time when the Pacific Northwest is burning and the American Southeast in Florida is flooding uh, and collapsing. You would think that the uh, climate crisis being uh, manifest now rather than in the future uh, would be a spur to that. But, you know, I mean, this is really sort of the prelude to the serious, even the more serious bill, the $3.5 trillion human infrastructure bill, which will also contain a a, a lot of green infrastructure in it, that uh, the Democrats have vowed uh, that if it is not passed, they will not go for the uh... infrastructure bill being voted on in the senate right now and i should add one point that's really important and that is i think to secure the support of joe manchin and Kristen cinema even for a version of uh, the three point five trillion dollar bill which they probably will want to lop off some of uh, biden had to get uh... this bipartisan infrastructure bill through so Everything is connected, and uh, I think that's the best way of, of looking at all of this.
0: A spokesman for Greenpeace said, quote, this looks like the Exxon infrastructure bill, close quote. Uh, she was referring to the fact that it dropped the requirement that the electric grid has to be prepared to replace fossil fuels with renewable sources, solar, wind, and, and hydropower. Is it going too far to say this looks like the Exxon infrastructure bill?
1: Well, if I worked for Greenpeace, I'd say it. Uh it's <laughs> okay. it's it's a good phrase uh of, and parts of it do. But parts of it don't. And as I as I just noted, the second bill, the reconciliation bill, which will be passed only with Democratic support, will certainly have more green elements in it. Now, uh is Joe Manchin, who represents a, uh, a coal, uh, the la- America's well, one of America's two coal industry-intensive states, even as the coal industry collapses simply due to market uh, forces. Uh, the other state being uh, Wyoming, uh, and these are the two states that voted most heavily for for Donald Trump. Since Joe My- Manchin represents that state, you're still going to see some Exxon elements, I suspect, in the reconciliation bill, or maybe more precisely you're going to see uh, some diminution of, of the green elements in that bill. But that's what you can do when, you know, you need every Democratic vote. And some of the Democrats are beholden uh, to the fossil fuel industry.
0: In between the passage, which we assume will happen, of the bipartisan infrastructure bill and the Senate taking up the $3.5 trillion human infrastructure bill, there's one other step that we have never talked about. The Senate bill has to go to a conference with the House before it can become law. And some progressives in the House are saying they plan to demand changes and send it back to the Senate. That certainly sounds like trouble for Chuck Schumer.
1: It not only has to go to conference, it has to be voted on uh, by the by the whole House. Yes. And, you know, here, I think we what we need to you know think about uh and where the real leverage of House progressives come that that that's where they have leverage they you know if, if only f- four democrats and you know the squad at this point with Jamal Bowman now has five members if only four democrats don't vote for it uh the bill is dead and it's really not so much that they want changes to that uh it's it's how they will insist that what they want is included in the reconciliation bill the two bills can't be viewed separately because, you know, progressives have two ways of getting what they want. One would be in the infrastructure bill. The other would be in the reconciliation bill. And by withholding votes for the infrastructure bill, they uh, really are placing uh, their demands on the reconciliation bill. So, It's a complicated process, but I think the important point to realize here is progressives have real leverage over, you know, what the two bills end up uh,
0: saying and doing. And in some ways, the biggest issue that looms over all of this is how to pay for both of these bills. Republicans insisted and the Democrats conceded uh, that the bipartisan bill would not be paid for. By taxing the rich, taxing corporations, and giving the IRS the resources it needs to collect taxes, presumably the, the bigger bill is going to have those provisions in it, or will it?
1: Yeah, uh, it will. I mean, there's a, a, I think clear consensus among the Democrats that the big bill will have that funding in it now. Uh, Does that mean the corporate rate will go up to 28 percent, as President Biden has uh, suggested? Uh, Or does that mean it'll go up to 25 or 26 percent, as the redoubtably wrong Joe Manchin (laughs) has suggested? And, uh, you know, or will they settle on 27 percent? So. Yeah, I mean, those provisions will be in the reconciliation, to fund the reconciliation bill, you know, as also a major source of way to sort of fund it would be uh, reducing what Medicare has to pay for prescription drugs by enabling Medicare to negotiate prices instead of accepting the ridiculous prices that pharmaceutical companies impose on both Medicare and the American public. And so that's another way. Of of funding this. But will taxes on the rich go up? Yes. And will taxes on corporations go up? Yes. And they will be major uh, ways to fund the reconciliation bill.
0: One of the most outrageous moves of Republicans uh, in the current Congress is their blocking of of giving more resources to restore the IRS and its ability to, to actually collect the taxes, which Congress has already passed. We know that Republicans don't like taxes, but they have voted for some taxes, and it seems like a good idea to try to collect those taxes. Or or am I going out on a limb here? No, you're not going out on a limb. But, you know,
1: you have to consider that the Republican uh, base is basically wealthy tax cheats. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, you know, they don't want to offend their base and and so we can understand that. I mean, why would you want to offend we- wealthy tax cheats <laughs> by including that uh including that in the legislation? Yeah. So I, I you know, I we can deeply sympathize with the Republican position here. <laughs>
0: okay. We have talked a lot about all the benefits to ordinary people, working class people, poor people of everything that's in these infrastructure bills. The Washington Post had a big article on lobbying around the infrastructure bill, and guess what? It's not the poor people and the uh, it's not mostly the working class organizations that are lobbying on, on this. The hundreds of millions being spent on lobbying is coming from corporate America and Wall Street because they want to get in on the action here. We're told that. Amazon spent $10 million on lobbying to get its interests reflected in the infrastructure bill. And there's a Wall Street group headed by our friends, Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley, has spent a similar amount. Uh, The Post explained, corporate America has long pined for massive federal investments that would be beneficial to their bottom lines. So uh, apparently this bill isn't just going going to... uh, help poor people and working-class people, especially in the red states. Apparently, it's going to help the, the bond uh, industry and uh, the companies that want public infrastructure to be uh, leased to private uh, entities. In some ways, this sounds like a taxpayer giveaway to the wealthiest Americans, doesn't it? Well,
1: whenever the government spends money, uh, big money, which is to say the, the, the kinds of folks you were just talking about, uh, usually finds a way to get in on it, but uh, this is unfortunately what happens in, uh, in a nation that is as capitalist uh, intensive as uh, as the United States. And, you know, I mean, let, let's be honest, the only way they wouldn't be lobbying is if there were no bill. So we, we want <laughs> yeah, the bill, right. and this is the unfortunate uh, side effect that comes with it. And if we limited funding for elections and passed the Democrats' first voter reform bill, which basically declared a way to get to public funding of uh, congressional elections, these guys would have uh, less clout. I mean, they can always, you know, because of Supreme Court decisions going back to Buckley v. Vallejo in the 70s, they they can always run independent campaigns. But so long as uh, our electoral and legislative process has opened a door for big money to just swan right in, uh, this is what happens.
0: Trying to find out what's actually going on in the negotiations and the proposed amendments to this bill, there's been a fair amount of reporting about something we've never talked about here, the cryptocurrency industry turns out they are also spending a small fortune on lobbying and they want the bipartisan bill changed so that they don't have to turn over information to the IRS. Taxpayers, I learned, are already required to report transactions in cryptocurrency as part of their tax returns. There's a box you have to check on page one, it turns out. The bill right now requires the brokers also to report to the IRS, uh, the way banks are now required to report. And that provision is projected to raise $28 billion over a de- decade of unreported cryptocurrency transactions. Uh, this, is, uh, this is the new frontier of, of government financing and of lobbying. Yeah,
1: well, you know, I mean, I think the Democratic administration in particular would, would be happy to really clamp down on cryptocurrencies, not only in terms of making them report, but their legal status in general. And so I don't expect to see any wavering on uh, on this. And, you know, this is kind of like a, a relatively new industry that has arisen on the margins of the body politic think marijuana growers too Mm -hmm. and so far they don't quite have the uh, establishment imprimatur you know that wall street itself has and notwithstanding wall street is really just a casino uh... designed to enrich the rich uh... but it's an it's a it's casino that Uh, has uh, legitimacy among the political class, Uh, cryptocurrency still doesn't quite have that. And so that may be a saving grace uh, keeping the requirements
0: that were in the bill uh, in the bill. Harold Meyerson, our man on roads, bridges, and cryptocurrency. (laughs) Read him at prospect.org. Thank you, Harold. Always great to have you on the show. Always great to be here, John. (laughs) It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Tuesday, we saw a significant defeat for progressives in the Democratic Party. In the primary for an open Democratic House seat in Cleveland, Nina Turner, who was supported by Bernie Sanders, AOC, and progressive groups, lost to Chantel Brown, who was supported by Hillary Clinton and the official party leadership. The vote wasn't that close. Nina Turner lost by five points. For comment, we turn to Alan Minsky. He's Executive Director of Progressive Democrats of America and old friend. Alan, welcome back.
2: Oh, great to be here, John. And I will say this, though, um, a five-point spread in a primary is actually quite close for a U.S. primary in either party. It's rare that uh, you actually see a sort of two-person battle end up that close in a primary.
0: Okay. Well, let's talk about what was at stake in this race. You wrote about that at Common Dreams. Uh, What does Nina
2: Turner stand for? What did she campaign on? Well, I mean, if you want to take the broadest view possible, and I think it, that's significant Yes. Um, Nina Turner, of course, is nationally well known because she was the co-chair of the 2020 campaign and was a very prominent surrogate for Bernie Sanders in the 2016 campaign and made a really huge connection with the Bernie Sanders base as a, a regular uh, speaker at the Sanders rallies in both campaigns. And so she's a sort of a, 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 you know, a, a signature member of the political movement that has transformed American politics and politics within the Democratic Party over the last five years, since the emergence of the Sanders campaign and the reappearance of, you know, a really more serious left progressive movement in American politics and within the Democratic Party. And she's very outspoken. She's a brilliant orator, also especially, you know, very sharp on interviews and you know, was a CNN commentator in the intervening years. And I can only imagine, you know, she made quite an impression on a number of people because her forthrightness and her grasp of a a broad range of policy issues uh, is just apparent in every one of her appearances and interviews.
0: We've been arguing for a long time that the progressive political strategy is not just a different set of issues, but also a different way of campaigning. Instead of uh, spending big bucks on TV ads and consultants and polling, we focus on base building, on mobilization of the grassroots, on bringing new people into the process through face-to-face and door-to-door work by volunteers. It's a long-term commitment, not just get out the vote on election day. Is that the kind of campaign that Nina Turner ran?
2: Yeah, it is. And, um, but, you know, it it was a extremely complicated and unique race. I think one of the things that is, is being questioned right now is why did this particular strategy of the more moderate centrist and even right wing elements in the Democratic Party and Democratic coalition succeed? In this race where they they didn't in, say, Corey Bush's and Jamal Bowman's, the two very progressive members who won elections, uh, knocking out long term incumbents. So even even a more difficult reach. Why did the almost the same tactics work so well here? And I think one of the reasons is the severe isolation of this race. It it did certainly in Metro Cleveland uh, grab all the headlines, become the focus of the region. And the attacks on Nina Turner that were funded by the, certainly the same major funding source that Elliot Engel had against Jamal Bowman, the Democratic Majority for Israel PAC, which poured I think 1.9 million. I think there probably are even there's even going to be an even later report where we'll find out even more money came in from that one PAC. And so there was a real focus on the, the negative information and misinformation that was put out into Cleveland Metro media. Against Nina Turner, but the you know I think the real significant thing here is again it reveals how intense the effort was and the commitment to defeat Nina Turner and and I do say and I do not mean to cast dispersions on Chantelle Brown as I say this you'd really be hard pressed anyone to believe that that money came in you know as it were in support of Nina's primary the, the top opponent Chantel Brown who won um, it was invested to defeat Nina Turner. And that was very clear.
0: I I conclude that the split in the Democratic Party, the the intensity of the campaign against Nina Turner, the split between the old Clinton-Obama-Wall Street Democrats and the Bernie Sanders-AOC progressive wing, seems like that split, at least in this campaign, is as wide as it's ever been. Uh, Is that a fair statement?
2: I think it is. And, um, you know, there was an article about this race in the Atlantic that maybe people saw that said that is, is this a race, it's a bellwether about the competition between uh, the two wings of the party. And they argued that it really wasn't, that there were particularities about this, obviously the nature of the district. And, um, and then in particular around Nina herself that made it not the case. Well, of course, that's only partly true. Yes, this was an extreme example of that. But there is a major countervailing force against that, and I know on the left, this is something that some people embrace and other people don't, which is the public policy that's coming out right now from uh, Democratic senators, Democratic members of the House, and the White House. I know it's not everything progressives want. It's certainly not everything PDA wants. And even where there are good measures in, say, the infrastructure bills, it's not everything we'd want out of those measures. Still, it is a constitutive difference from the Clinton and Obama years. Yeah. This level of fiscal spending that will benefit working people and poor people across the country. In fact, some of the strongest measures are directly targeted to lift people out of poverty. Uh, And then, of course, there's a lot of employment involved in it as well. And we hadn't seen anything like this. There were opportunities for Obama with the financial crisis to produce something analogous. And um, the fact that it's an infrastructure bill and it's this large, if it does turn out to be as large as it's thought that it will be, it's, it is is investment in employment and then continuing funding of things way beyond what happened with uh, the, what was it called, the CARES Act in uh, the last year of the Trump administration. That was obviously an emergency measure due to the pandemic. This is clearly informed by the crisis of the pandemic, but it is... Uh, direct fiscal investment in projects that uh, we haven't seen anything like this since the Johnson years.
0: So what was Nina Turner's campaign doing that aroused such intense opposition from the party establishment?
2: Were there issues where they really wanted to stop her? I would say on the surface, yes. And if you look deeper, yes. Allow me to answer the deeper question for Sure. Us. I think that um, American politics has a sort of center that still has overlap in the two parties. Um, And this is the maintenance of the structure of our economic system uh, from Reagan through the Trump years. And that is what people generally refer to as, as neoliberalism. And how strong is the progressive challenge to that And what role does someone like Nina Turner play in making it a challenge, not just that is happening maybe through policy like the infrastructure program I just made reference to, but it becomes aware to the public that this is a direct ideological challenge. And what's being proposed is something different, in which expectations will be that these class arrangements that have defined American society these last four decades will shift, that poor people, working class people, are going to demand a middle-class life with middle-class security, job security, better public institutions, etc. Nina will pull no punches on those fronts. And she connects with people. I think she's very threatening in that regard. And there is a big appetite to defeat her. And this is why we can see the funding that came in included Republicans and uh, even some Trump Republicans, though generally business chamber of commerce type Republicans. Now, on the more surface front, I think this is a tricky subject to tackle. But If we are serious, and it's funny, I do like to focus on the economic issues that I just framed. I do think at the end of the day, those are our fundamental base questions. Are working people in America gonna have a a shot at a good life, a decent life that they have less and less had over the past few decades? In other words, this is an opportunity for new progressive fiscal Keynesian type spending. It's happening, can we make it stick and can we then make it really work for working people? maybe in the way that it did in the you know post-World War II era. But on the level of political discourse, you know, it, it is like a hall of mirrors, John. You have on the one hand attacks on Nina for things that she said. Some of the particular quotes that were used, and there's no doubt, they were at the core of of why she lost you give those quotes to people who have a talented background in advertising and campaign messaging they're going to have a pretty good chance that you just just, just spin it the way you can spin it, spin it to its maximum effect, and that occurred. Okay, there are things that are done by the moderate wing of the party and their aggression towards other, of the Democratic Party, and their aggression towards whatever political point of view that they object to that are equally fierce, right, and equally uh, undermining. So the fact that they say about the progressive wing (laughs) Things that are every bit as, um, you know, just caricatures and nasty and negative. Herein, I think, is where who has the most money to send out television advertisements, who can do it in the most direct way, and also what role does still old established major platform media play in how they are being amplified? And um, in this regard, uh, it played very big in the race, and it is sending a message, and and it will be continually repeated by the moderate wing of the party, that the progressives are destructive, they're not team players, and a candidate who's forthright and has a sort of common sense way of speaking to an audience who is forthright can't do that anymore. That's too divisive you'll be defeated if you do that. That's a big shot across the bow against the progressive movement right now.
0: I need to ask you about one other element in all of this. You've emphasized uh, that Nina Turner uh, is a crucial part of the, of the Bernie Sanders movement. The Bernie Sanders movement, of course, we all know is largely a white movement. Bernie's from Vermont. There's no black people in Vermont. The camp, the supporters of the campaign were all and the activists in the campaign were largely white people. This was a campaign between two black women in a black town, Cleveland was, was the whiteness of the Bernie movement, a factor in any of this?
2: Well, it is mainly in the way that it's spun at the level of discourse, because, OK, how many members of the squad are white? Is the squad the, the heir to the Bernie Sanders movement, the leadership of the National Progressive Movement? Yes, it is. We think none so. Of them, none of them are white. Right. Yeah. And certainly with Cori Bush, you have somebody now holding a seat that in terms of the demographics and sociology of that district in St. Louis, very comparable to the district. Uh, District 11 in Metro Cleveland. But still, yes, this was a direct, in terms of um, major metropolitan area, major city politics, a conflict there between two different wings. And this is get, starts getting complex. But if you look at cities like St. Louis, cities like Cleveland, you're going to have political leadership that is almost always drawn from the Black community. So what's going to be the relationship of a politician who might be a mayor of a city like that to the corporate headquarters that are downtown to that nexus and tax base that tends to be right around the baseball stadiums, right. Versus the community. And I think you can see that conflict between Chantel Brown and Nina Turner play out here. And those are two, you know, strong tendencies in black politics, especially in, you know, Northeastern metropolitan areas in the United States. Rashida Tlaib was being challenged by somebody until their sort of campaign imploded this uh, past election cycle. So Rashida ended up with not much competition, a little bit in Minnesota as well. That occurred in the challenge with Ilhan Omar. I anticipate Cory Bush will have some kind of well-financed challenge in St. Louis. And this played out in uh, in uh, in Cleveland as well. And again, that goes back to neoliberalism versus progressivism.
0: So, Concluding thoughts, of course, we want to know what lessons there are for progressives in 2022 coming out of the recent Tuesday's experience in Cleveland.
2: You know, among other things, you know, John, that district is likely to be redrawn. Ohio is losing a seat. The Republicans are fierce on gerrymandering. And of course, sadly, we imagine the Republican-controlled legislature of Ohio is going to get to do its hideous gerrymandering of that state again. We're going to make a big push at PDA to try to block that and demand that the US Senate do something to outlaw gerrymandering, which will require doing something about the filibuster in the next month. It's an uphill climb to get them to do that. Having said that, I don't think it's really going to have that much impact. Incumbents are always tough to knock off. There'll be a few open seats. There'll be a few Republicans in national elections who are vulnerable, and there'll be races to win those primaries. And I expect In those races, in most places, there'll be a battle between a progressive and a moderate. In some states, it look like there are the two highest profile candidates are both calling themselves progressives and looking at their public policy that actually matches up. That's sort of what's happening in Pennsylvania right now. But in North Carolina, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, we'll see battles between progressives and moderates. And I think even before this race, you'd go in thinking that in most of those states, the moderates would be favored. They'll have bigger bank accounts. And this is significant. Nina Turner, as a significant and famous surrogate of Bernie Sanders, had a unique capacity to match Sanders in having a huge war chest of money from small donations. That's not commonly available to progressives. Um, But nonetheless, I think the progressive message resonates. And this maybe is the most important point I'll say. An organization like PDA will assist in having the progressive messaging build off of the infrastructure package. We've made this break. We can now really try to improve society. We're the formation that will do that. Let's hope we can really build momentum around that and then move forward to create positive social change um, in the country. And then one other thing, it's a horrible silver lining for progressives. Had Nina Turner won, you could already see the writing on the wall. The Republicans are favored to win the House. There's a whole lot of reasons for that, I- wrote about it in the article in Common Dreams. But if they do, you could just see the Democrats blaming the progressives. The likelihood that they would do that if Nina Turner had won this race (laughs) uh, was much greater than uh, with Nina Turner losing. But Nina Turner is going to stick around. I think we're going to hear a lot more from her. Absolutely brilliant uh, commentator on the American scene. And I certainly expect to see her uh, both as a a prominent voice in uh, American society and I wouldn't be surprised if she's running for office again real, real soon.
0: Alan Minsky, he is executive director of PDA, Progressive Democrats of America. You can read his piece about the significance of the Nina Turner campaign at CommonDreams.org. Alan, thanks for talking with us today.
2: Great to be here, John. <laughs>
0: It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Weiner talking about politics, thinking about the left. Now it's time to talk about COVID vaccines, the Delta variant, and Joe Biden. In an effort to stop the global spread of the virus, Joe Biden made what he called a monumental commitment to send 500 million vaccine doses abroad. And he's also waived intellectual property restrictions for the vaccine manufacturer, permitting countries around the world to manufacture their own vaccines. But the spread of the Delta variant in the United States and the fact that only 1% of people in the world's low-income countries have received even one dose of vaccine suggests Biden must do more. For comment, we turn to Greg Gonsalves He works on epidemiology at the Yale School of Public Health. He's been an AIDS activist for 30 years. He writes regularly for The Nation about the pandemic, and he's also a 2018 MacArthur Fellow. Greg Gonsalves, welcome back. Thanks, John. So would you describe Joe Biden's actions on COVID as a monumental commitment?
3: The check is in the mail is sort of the way I'd think about it. Um, A couple of things. One is the TRIPS waiver commitment was nice and unexpected. Um, Nobody's done it before. We're all pleased. But we all said months ago that that was not enough to to stem the tide of new infections around the world. Um, And that allowing tech transfer to happen or helping tech transfer to happen so we could scale up more doses, both domestically or uh, in plants and facilities around the world were the next necessary step. And subsidizing that scale up was gonna be important. The president has said he will donate 500 million doses. How many has he donated so far? Not not as many as, as he's committed to, but the scale of what's necessary now is like in the billions of doses. And that's simply not on the table by the administration for some bizarre reason, um, because I don't understand how perpetuating the pandemic around the world really is a, a good fo- foreign policy option for 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 Mr. Biden
0: in the nation you say there are three things biden could do right now number one on your list is for us to produce a lot more uh, of the vaccines to send to the global south what what would that take
3: i think we need to do two things in tandem in terms of production a group called prep for all in new york city has suggested that working under current frameworks of the defense production act um, under the sort of Cognizant said, we own some of the patents on the Moderna mRNA vaccine, and we have $10 billion in the bank from the American Rescue Act, we could scale up mRNA production in the U.S. by asking Lonza, which is Moderna's contractor, to help build another site to work with uh, the company itself or with people who helped develop the mRNA vaccine to build, to retrofit other plants. The idea is that being close to home, being close to the company that uh, originally made the vaccine, you know, we could get this done quickly with the resources of the entire US government behind it. It's not alone sufficient to to get us where we need to go. WHO has called for a multilateral sort of distributed network of vaccine production hubs. And the first one they announced is in South Africa, but they've yet to make an arrangement with any of the mRNA companies uh, to scale up. And so um, if we can get some domestic production going under the current framework of US law with resources and the power of the federal government, great. We should also be pouring money into these vaccine hubs so that at the same time we're building up domestic capacity, we build up international capacity as well, not leaving them dependent the next time we come around with a pandemic that we need to face together.
0: So you use the term production hubs rather than just factories. What, what exactly is a vaccine hub?
3: I think the idea is that each of the regions around the world are going to need to be able to produce vaccines not just for COVID, not just for the current moment, but over the long term, and to create sort of a a regional um, hub where different manufacturers and different kinds of vaccines are being made um, that may not be the province of one one originating manufacturer. It might be for multiple diseases. There might be different parts of the vaccine that are made at different places at the hub in South Africa or in, in Southern Africa, for instance. And so I think the idea from the WHO's perspective is that it's a hub and spoke model. So South Africa could supply for the Southern African region, one in Senegal could supply for West Africa, another one in Kenya for East Africa, then we could go to Latin America, et cetera, et cetera. Um, So the idea is that these hubs supply the spokes, the countries that are surrounding them in a given world region.
0: More production in the United States, development of these hubs in the global south. And the third thing Biden should be doing, you say, is dealing with the millions of doses here in the United States already manufactured that are unused and approaching their expiration dates. What what should we know? What should we do about that?
3: Well, supply is exceeding demand in the U.S. And so with the current production schedules, we're not going to run out of doses for Americans. But what we, we stockpiled thus far, we shouldn't make a commitment that we're going to do it at some point. We should do it now. What we're seeing in Indonesia and in South Africa and Zambia and other places around the world is is a con- conflagration, and really, you know, are seeing their the worst moments of the COVID pandemic thus far, spawning new variants like the Delta variant that none of us ever heard of six months ago, but we we ignored it our peril. So let's get the vaccines that we're not using out there. And this doesn't go just for us, it goes for Canada, it goes for other countries that are that are hoarding doses right now. Um, and so let's do everything we can at the current moment to to expand access for the current moment, but also for the next three, six, eight, nine, ten, twelve 10, 12 months and into, into 2022. Biden
0: could have done all of this months ago. Why do you think he hasn't? You could
3: sort of manufacture lots of exotic reasons about why this isn't happening, but the most obvious one is that the companies who make these vaccines are completely opposed to any sort of sharing of intellectual property um, of anybody else making the vaccines but them. mRNA is a platform that can make dozens and dozens of kinds of vaccines for many, many, many diseases. It's a proverbial golden goose, and they do not want anybody's fingers on on their goose. The point is, is that the president is taking his cues from the CEOs. President Biden has shown a sort of deference to industry in in certain ways over the course of his career. And this is just another one of those.
0: And let's talk about the new Delta variant. One of the countries that it's hit especially hard is Israel. The number of new cases there has climbed from 10 per day in early June to more than 1,000 per day now, the end of July. What should we conclude from this?
3: The Delta variant is much more infectious than uh, our original COVID or SARS-CoV-2 strain. Most of the people are getting infected with the Delta variant are unvaccinated individuals. Um, there's some sense that, you know, people with the j vaccination may be less well protected than the mRNA vaccines. But by and large, you know, this is a much more virulent strain of the virus in terms of its ability to transmit. And so the Breakthrough infections we're seeing in in different settings is the fact that the force of infection, the sheer sort of um, wall of virus that comes out of you when you're carrying this strain, is much uh, more or more grievous than the, than the ones we've seen before. So you know, if you have a little bit of immunosuppression, if you're a little bit older and your immune response isn't as robust as it as it used to be, you, know, you may be at greater susceptibility. But you might even be fully vaccinated and fully antibodied up against COVID nineteen. But with enough virus around you, that 5%, you know, when we talk about efficacy, it's not nothing's 100%. You could be exposed to so much virus that, that it breaks through your, your immune defenses conferred by the, by the vaccine. Most cases, you're going to be fine. Mild infection may be asymptomatic. Um, again, most people in the hospitals right now are either um, unvaccinated by choice or, 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 or by lack of access to them if you're outside of this country.
0: So the projections for the United States are that as a result of the Delta variant, the surge will accelerate steadily through the summer and fall and peak in mid-October when daily deaths will be more than triple what they are now. This comes from the COVID-19 scenario modeling hub, described as a consortium of researchers working in consultation with the CDC. Those projections, of course, are based on a whole bunch of, of assumptions. Do you think that's a reasonable prediction of what's going to happen?
3: So most epidemiologists and disease modelers I know don't predict more, out, more than about three to four weeks out because things change rapidly, right? You know, there could be the Epsilon variant, and then, you know, there goes all of our predictions. But with still refusal to get vaccinated in, in many places in the U.S., with mask wearing becoming less and less common... Delta is still going to cut a wide swath to the unvaccinated population in the U.S.
0: Well, I think the assumption is that as Delta becomes more prevalent and more people get it, that uh, more people will get, get vaccinated in response. But of course, that's an assumption.
3: Yeah. I mean, over the past few days, there's been an uptick in, in vaccinations in the U.S., which is, is um, good to see. You know, even um, people who've been basically horrible on, on COVID since the beginning, like Sarah Huckabee Sanders is urging people to get vaccinated. So I think there's a little bit of a come to Jesus moment for some GOP politicians who've ignored the seriousness of the pandemic as the burden of new infections and deaths and hospitalizations bears down on their, their states and their towns and cities.
0: Uh, let's talk a little bit more about vaccine refusal and vaccine reluctance in the United States. The statistics, we're told, are that, of course, the political divide is significant nationwide. 86% of Democrats have had at least one shot compared with 52% of Republicans. And as you say, some Republicans are now strongly recommending vaccination. Mitch McConnell is one. Mitt Romney said on Wednesday, quote, the politicization of vaccination is an outrage and, frankly, moronic close quote. But of course, politics isn't the only dividing line. Uh, The New York Times recently had a fascinating figure that in Princeton, 75% of adults uh, are immunized. In Trenton, just 14 miles south, only 45% are. And both of these are equally democratic towns. Of course, Princeton is white and wealthy. Trenton is black and Latino and poor. So politics isn't the only dividing line here.
3: No, look, we've had hesitancy, vaccine hesitancy in the U.S. for a while, and um, we've had suspicion of the medical establishment for a while, uh, often in communities that have been made as guinea pigs for medical experiments, like the Tuskegee experiments done to African-Americans. And so there's a lot of suspicion of of the, the U.S. government, you know. And so that's slightly different than someone who is listening to, you know, Tucker Carlson about vaccines and making a decision based on that kind of information. And you have to approach people in different ways. The, the main thing is that public health is is nonpartisan. You know, every Republican, every Democrat, and every independent needs to get vaccinated for us to get out of this pandemic. And nobody cares whether you're in a red state or a blue state who you voted for when you're lying in an ICU bed. Um, and so we're going to need to figure out how to sort of bridge the the partisan divides here. Um, as a matter of national survival, um, nobody wants to see hospitals in Mississippi or Alabama collapse under the weight of, of, of the pandemic. Nobody wants to see people die um, unnecessarily from a virus uh, that can be prevented through vaccination.
0: Getting back to just at the end here to the, the global uh, scene, I quoted that figure that 1% of the poorest people of the world have been vaccinated. Uh, we've talked about American responsibility. What do we know about the Chinese and Russian vaccines? Do we know anything more about them now than the last time you and I talked, which was a couple of months ago?
3: They haven't been shown to be very effective compared to, to the mRNA vaccines or even Johnson & Johnson. Um, and I think what you're seeing in, in many cases is virus remorse from the countries who uh, originally sort of made orders for those vaccines early on as they see their pandemic sort of explode even in the context of of using the Sputnik vaccine or the or the Sinovac, so um, you know the real point here is that we have two extremely effective, extremely safe vaccines made by Moderna and Pfizer. They can be scaled up um, on at a, at a level that we have not done thus far. Um, the companies are saying you'll have all you need in 2022. If we said that on national TV in the U.S. to our own citizens, you know we probably could make a lot more of this, but you know, wait a year or so, you'll be fine. Um, I think we'd have um, riots in the streets, red states or blue states, because people want to be first in line. Uh, and we're telling everybody else to go, go to the back of the bus.
0: Greg Gonsalves, he wrote about three things Biden can do right now to stop COVID and save lives. You can read him at thenation.com. Thank you, Greg. Great to have you back on the show. Thanks, John. That's it for today's Living in the USA. Our sound editors are Will Broten and Alan Minsky. Our social media maven is Renee Reynolds. KPFK's programming traffic director is Matt Perez. Thanks, as always, to Rye Cooter for our theme music Mambo Sinuendo. Living in the USA is recorded and produced at our Blythe Avenue studios in Los Angeles. If you miss part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at livingintheusapod.com. I'm John Wiener. We'll be back next week talking about politics, thinking about the left, and living in the USA.